Amen. It is good to see you, to worship, to share lordship. We've got a couple more weeks. We'll go through the month of April as we began last week with Easter. What that means, what that looks like in a couple different ways. This morning, everything hinges on what happens last week when we talk about the resurrection, Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Without that, there is no such thing as Christianity. Jesus is just another good teacher, another good guy, another myth in the legend of history, if you will. But it does matter. It matters a great deal. And so this morning, because of the testimony of faithful followers so long ago, the resurrection, the truth that we talked about last week, that means something now in our life. And so this morning, we're just going to share what that is. And we just titled this, The Cost. We don't talk in terms of lordship very much. We don't think really in terms like that as in other countries with kings and dictators and that kind of thing. So it's a little difficult, I think, for us to wrestle with that because don't tell me what to do, (laughs) all right? It's hard for us. Let's just be honest. But when it comes to this, this notion of what Jesus and the claim he has on your life, And so the cost of Jesus as Lord of your life, what does it cost to follow Christ? Let me ask you, does it cost? Is there a cost? Is there anything at all that we should be concerned about? See, that same effectual call that Jesus gave so long ago to those first disciples was the same then, and it's the same for any who would be called a disciple today, I believe, that Jesus gave the call to follow me. That implies a great deal in those words. One, that he knows where he's going and that it's worth for you to follow. And it is the call for you and I to submit and to obey. Also, uncomfortable words for us, are they not? Matthew 16, 24, and I'm just, I have a ton of scripture. And like with Nehemiah, with Joe Ash, when he found the scrolls, I'm hoping revival breaks out because they just read scripture. <laughs> Matthew 16, 24 says this, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Can you hear the cost in that? Do you hear it? Those statements of Christ are crystal clear throughout all of Scripture. I don't know how you can make it any more clearer than those statements. That means that following Christ could never And I know that's an ultimate word, but never be understood in such a way to mean something just mental that I do, some mental assent or a decision that I have in forgiveness or salvation or that heaven is a part of my future. It's an invitation given to the lost that was clear. It's a costly commitment, in other words. That's the call of Christ. Mark 10, 21, Jesus looking at him, loved him, said he's referring to the rich young ruler, you lack one thing. That's always been profound to me. Really? One? That's it? That's pretty good, isn't it? Better than ten. <laughs> I'm sure I'm like way down the list. But this guy's one thing. I mean, that's, I mean, that's like right there, but still falls short of God's glory, doesn't it? And so what does Jesus say? Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come follow me. And please don't misunderstand, that selling stuff doesn't make him a Christian or doesn't make him worthy of heaven. It's the last part of that, come follow me. Jesus goes on, Matthew 13, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and then covered up. 
Then in his joy, notice what Jesus does and how he puts these two things together. In his joy, he goes and sells all he has. <laughs> Who has that kind of joy? Not unless you know what you're getting is far more valuable, right? And he goes out and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like the net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, the men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out, separate evil from the righteous, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you hear the cost? And see, the point being made is the cost. When anyone comes to the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that message, they give up all that they have. Everything. Everything that you would hold on to in the world, the things we hold on to so tightly, in other words, in both hands. But when you come to Christ, you have to let all of that go so you can embrace Him, not your worldly goods or worldly things or desires. You cannot do that with both hands full of the world's stuff and come to Christ. Matthew 10, 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. There's cost there, isn't there? Can you hear it? Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set man against father, daughter against mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. There's a cost. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I would venture to say that's an extremely high cost. Wouldn't you agree? Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me of me. There's another cost. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, Luke 14, where Luke records all of this, gets to the end, and Jesus says, there is, you cannot follow me unless you are totally in, is his point. We are only able to follow at that kind of commitment because what God has done in our life, the faith that he's given through the Holy Spirit to draw you in his sovereign grace to transform your life. There is, there's no pulling yourself up by the bootstraps to do this. There is no possible mechanism for you and I to have that level of commitment without him in our life. And so evangelism is this idea Jesus gave, said to make disciples. To reach people, I would say here, where you live, work, and play. That's the notion of great commission. The verb being used there is this, it's always happening. In other words, you go, but it's as you are going. As you are doing life, wherever God is taking you, make disciples. That's the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. That, by the way, destroys all this wokeness that's going around in church culture these days like wildfire. The, the idea that you could segregate the church in some fashion is just anathema to what Christ is teaching. How do you make disciples? How does Jesus say to do that? Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to reserve all the things I've commanded you. There's a cost, isn't there? That's a command that you and I aren't giving. 
we're followers, right? I'm guessing at this point you're like, well, yeah, we know all that already. (laughs) Great. We get it. But I don't even think we're close, to be quite honest. What is the underlying foundation, if you will, to come to terms with who Jesus is, what he sets before you as a Christian? In short, it's to die to self and live for God. That's the cost. You die to self to live. And it's a paradoxical statement because you obviously we're not talking about a physical death, are we? Paul makes that really clear in Romans. You are to be a living sacrifice. He pairs these, these odd things up that don't go together to make them go together. That's this underlying foundation, and you can see that in Galatians 2.19. That's one of the foundations we try to bring before you here to, to stand on, to have a high view of God, in other words. That's what that means if you have a high view of who God is, not a man-centered view. What does that mean to have a high view of God? And here's the one thing you need to remember today, and this is it. Fear Him. And I could pray and we can walk out, but I still have a lot to say. (laughs) But that's it. Fear God. That's the fundamental principle of our lordship and the cost that you and I have as Christian people that you're being called to is fear Him. Where is your biggest loyalty John Witherspoon said this, the only fear of God can deliver us from the fear of man. That's the only fear that delivers you from the fear of man is the fear of God. The Puritans would say it this way, fear God greatly, fear man very little. And therein lies the issue, not for the world, but for us as Christian people. Let me ask you something, where is the fear of God in your life? I'll get personal. I don't mean to offend, but it just it offends me in my own life, quite frankly, of how far short I fall. We'll be moan and bellyache everything that's happening as a nation, will we not? And where our country is going, the downward course to self-destruction. Why is that happening? And the first thing that pops into your mind is something political of the red and blue team. You are amiss. The reason it happens is because there is no fear of God. That's what Romans 1 says. There is no longer, in other words, a high view of God. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Many seek the face of a ruler, but it is from the Lord that a man gets justice. An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, but the one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked, or in other words, to the world, or to your governing party, or whatever you want to fill in the blank with there. It's because fear of man has replaced fear of God. We no longer tremble at His Word, Isaiah 66, 5. And because we no longer tremble at His Word, there is no power given to it, Amos 8, 11. Listen, if last year has revealed anything to us, it seems to me, it's that we fear death. We fear what the cool kids of culture think about us. And we fear what the godless governing powers will do to us. See, the real issue is not whether you believe all these cultural absurdities are taking place of critical race theory, the sexual revolution, or what Major League Baseball did this past week of all things, for crying out loud. 
or that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is a now a racist statement. It must equal 5 or whatever else you want to think of it. How about this one? That sheet music would be banned because it's a construct of colonialism. That's from Oxford University. The real issue is whether or not you have a backbone or not. The real issue is whom you fear. The real issue is who is Lord of your life. See, they know the truth in what they're doing. They know they're presenting absurdities in our culture. They know and must suppress the truth, Romans 1 says. That's how this has to work. It's just a matter of how far they'll be allowed to go. Listen, there is no way for you and I as Christian people specifically, not the world, but as Christian people, there is no possible way for you to wonder why we are seeing the things that we are seeing. Because when Christians are no longer salty, what does Matthew 5 say when Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount? What do you do with unsalty salt? You throw it out and it gets trampled on. And is that not what happening to our culture? That's what I believe is exactly happening because there is no fear of God. No fear of God ultimately is less and less freedom. That's what just happens. It has to happen. When you cannot govern yourself, somebody else or some powerful entity will. More governing control, more tyranny, or whatever you just decide to call that. And for, for what I believe we are seeing, it's just a nation under God's judgment. I subscribe to World Magazine. It's a Christian news source. And the journalist, her name is Katie McCoy. She sums this up, I think, real succinctly. Um, and there's a link on our Facebook page under the live stream for this. You can read the whole article. But she gave what I thought was a clear description of what's taking place, and it's a reference to the sexual revolution. She says this, We have an entire philosophy and a culture that believes that people are not created by an actual personal God. And so with the denial of God comes our, how our identity is formed. And it is believed that this identity is a self-determined one, that we are autonomous individuals and that our highest good is to express socially, relationally, who we psychologically believe ourselves to be. And that psychological identity need not conform to all the physical realities. So now it's expected that social, relational, everything would conform to this psychologicalized self and that's why it's considered almost an act, and I would say it's not almost an act, it is an act in our culture, of personal violence, if you don't agree. So she says, of personal violence because the other person in society is not giving unqualified, unmitigated support for their psychological self that is expressed in according to the gender of one's preference. Do you hear that? That's a cost. That's a cost of not believing in God as a creator as he defines who you are and what you are. She goes on to say, but like all doctrines, it goes back to what is truth and who defines what is truth. And that goes back to the authority of God. General revelation is the doctrine throughout history and history of the church. And it says there are things that we can know about God from creation and conscience, and gender is one of those aspects of creation. It is declaring the order and design and the beauty that God created us to have and so we end up suppressing that. We no longer believe those things. We no longer have the fear of God in view. 
It's a good article. I would encourage you to read it. The highest good, then, is whatever I project myself to be. And for you to criticize that, if that's the highest good, would then be what? The highest evil. And that's what you're seeing in our culture. So what can you and I do? What can we do as God's people when panic, fear, tyranny, statism begin to raise their ugly heads? In other words, when all the voices screaming at us from wherever they're screaming at demand that you acknowledge that the sky is pink and not blue? I think in our heart of hearts we know as Christian people what to do, and that's to repent. It's the recognition where we have not spoken the truth in love, where we have been silent too long. Not just in the words you're speaking, but in our lives and what we stand for, what we live for. We've been too quiet of what we know to be true. There are a couple forms this quietness takes. I'm just going to share a couple. First, it's Christians who secretly cheer the few Christians that are actually standing up. Maybe you've experienced this before in your workplace or wherever, but you say something at work, you say something at school, you assert your biblical worldview to raise a different point of view. You go, hey, I, this is truth. Based on God's Word, this is what, this, what truth is. And then you hear from those who would stand next to you but don't say anything. They come to you privately and tell you, we're with you, keep up, good job. <laughs> but they won't say anything at the time, but they'll circle back through and want to encourage you. That's a form of being quiet, not unlike Nicodemus coming to Jesus by night. The second one, there are those who think that if you say something, you're rocking the boat to speak up in the first place. They just want you to be quiet. That's what happened to Samson. Think about the pressure. Judges 15, if you read that section... 3,000 men came to Samson because he was raising a ruckus. <laughs> 3,000 because he was picking on the Philistines. Don't you know, Samson? We're, we're subjugated to them. They're our government. You can't do that. They didn't want him to rock the boat. They rule over us, in other words. Just do what they say. Which... If that's your thinking, you're misunderstanding what Paul is saying in Romans 13, which we've covered briefly before. Moses had the same issue in Exodus chapter 5 when he goes to Pharaoh, let my people go. What's Pharaoh's response? Let them go get their own supplies. They come and complain to Moses, what did you do? You're making it harder for us. There's a cost, isn't there? How about as Nehemiah built the wall of Jerusalem? They're all through Scripture. See, both types need to repent first to start understanding the dark times that you and I live in. Yes, they are dark, but they're not insurmountable. We need to understand and process in our own minds what is it going to take for all of us to quit doing our best Jonah imitation and running away. The second is repenting of the addiction maybe of worldly things because you don't want to lose those things of personal peace or influence or keeping your head buried in the sand of what's going on, not to rock the boat. See, the reason I believe we are so knotted up in the pit of our stomachs in fear, in this fear of man specifically, is that we have not examined the cost of Jesus being Lord of your life. 
the cost of that is fear of Him, not fear of man. Darkness is all around, but we must not fear but repent and be willing to endure like Job whatever God would cause or allow to enter into your life for His glory. I'm going to just read a whole bunch of text from Scripture to make the point. Psalms 56, 11. I trust in God. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? There's a cost in there because man is going to try, isn't he? He's going to try to do something. He's going to try to make it unbearable for you. That's all they have. Psalms 118.6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. Do you feel that way? Do you feel the hope? What can man do to me? Hebrews 13.6, so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Where do you think he got that from? Matthew 10, 28, do not fear the one who kills the body, but can kill the soul as well. There's a cost right there, isn't there? I'm not certainly looking to check out early or be some kind of martyr in that sense, but do I fear that more than the Lord? Do I fear death? Do I fear what comes? Jesus says, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Clear distinction of what to fear. Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Do you trust him? You walked into this sanctuary this morning didn't think for a second when you sat down whether that chair was going to support you, did you? That's that kind of trust in the Lord. Do you trust Him? Do you trust Him all the way with whatever you're going to face from this day to the whatever, however many days He's given you? How great they are, how hard they are, how much you have to endure. Do we trust Him? Hebrews 2 14, since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he, referring to Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death, which we celebrated last week, he might destroy the one who has power of death. That's the devil. Do you recognize the fact that what we celebrated last week, Satan has zero power, none? He delivered all those who would fear uh, through fear of death, are subject to lifelong slavery. That's all he has. It's just this idea. That's all Satan has. He has been defeated. Hebrews 13, 6, So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper. helper I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalms 31, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, and work for those who take refuge in you in the sight of children, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. In other words, what the world will try to do, say, and push you into or push you away from who God is. The method in which they will use, the propaganda, the tongue that they will say, Where is your God? 2 Corinthians 7, since we have these promises, beloved, let us 
cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. I have a ton more. (laughs) Whoever despises the word brings destruction on himself, but he who reveres the commandment will be rewarded. Do you revere the word of God? In other words, do you fear that and awe and reverence? Is it a part of your life? By steadfast love, the faithfulness is atoned for, the iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. No fear, evil runs rampant. There is no turning. Not in your life, not in anybody else's life. Well, we'll find a balance. We'll find, hey, I'm, I'm okay, and, and that kind of thing. We'll find that, that sliding scale in reference to what that evil is. But by the fear of the Lord, you turn away from it. I'll finish with this one, Isaiah 60, verse 5. Then you shall see and be radiant. You, he's referring to Israel, your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth from the nations will come to you. Why is all that happening? Because they fear the Lord. He is first place. He is their greatest loyalty. See, the temptation, I believe, for you and I, dear Christian, for those of you who would see clearly the facts of the cultural insanity that's being pressed upon us, is to believe that all is lost and all is hopeless. I'm here to tell you that it's not. Apart from God, that would be correct. There is no hope. You might as well just go along and get along. But because of what we celebrated last week, because we testified to the fact that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord and Savior, there is always hope. And even in the darkest moments of this culture or whatever has happened in history and that the darker it may get in the future, there is always hope. And the hope rests in the very foundation that we must have the fear of the Lord in our heart. It may not be clear to you today. It may not be clear ever to you what God is doing But like Job, he doesn't owe you an answer to any of those questions because he is Lord and you and I are not. God is doing, please hear me, God is doing, he is causing, he is allowing everything in our lifetime for his good pleasure, purpose, and holiness to come to fruition And if you get to the place where you think all of this is pointless, then you've misunderstood the preacher when you've read Ecclesiastes, when he says all is vanity, grasping after the wind. God has made everything beautiful in its time, he says in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has put eternity in man's heart, he says, So he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. Why does the preacher say it's all vanity? Because on your perspective, that's what it seems to look like. But you forget something. God is still on his throne. God is enthroned for all time and eternity. Man is mortal. And each and every breath that you are allowed to take is held in the strength of his right hand. There are things that we cannot explain, such maybe that we're seeing in our day. We may not be able to explain why they are happening, but that's the point. We are not meant to have to necessarily explain why. 
God is in the driver's seat. You and I are just along for the ride, hoping to get a, a good in-flight meal, if you will, and a smooth ride through this life. We are not in the know, in other words. We are not sitting down in Command Central and moving all the players around. That's his job. We are not the ones giving the orders. He is. So what is our role? Let me give you three of them. There are far more, but let me give you three. The first one, I'll just keep hammering home. Fear God. That's where you start. Fear Him. Keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man, Ecclesiastes says. And by commandments, I don't mean that that mitigates anything about grace. Jesus said, my commandments are not burdensome. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. But that doesn't mean there isn't a cost to following. Wrestle with that because there is a cost. He makes that clear in Scripture. The parable of the towers. You don't start something and then decide that you can't finish it. Understand it's going to cost you. Lordship of Christ in your life has a price to your life. Don't know what it is for you, but it will have a cost. Number two, delight in His Word. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And again, this does not negate God's grace, but rather establishes it. All those things are from God to begin with, and therefore from His grace, the law included. We know the law doesn't save. It's only through Jesus Christ and faith in Him that saves. But it's that word that converts the soul. It's how you know how to live life after that. It's what His Lordship means to you in your life. Here's the third one. I am taking this from... Doug Wilson's blog post, he says this, Love your wife. Respect and obey your husband. Control your temper. Stop drinking so much. (laughs) Be precise and honest in your business dealings. Get your kids into Christian education. Bring your family to church every week. Throw yourself into your Bible reading. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Laugh at the the theocratic pretense of mortal men and mow your lawn. I like that. Do life, in other words, in the honor of the Lord. Fear Him. And do all those things you enjoy doing to honor Him. Out of reverence and awe for Him. See, Jesus is truly God, truly man. And He is laying claim to your life. Do you trust Him? What is your biggest loyalty Is it to God, the people of God, or is it to something else? There is a general cost to think like Christ, to have a biblical attitude about life, about all the issues of our day. Scripture is mindful of us to have the mind of Christ. That's what that means. You want to know about these issues, these topics, what I should think, how I should respond that's what the Word of God is meant to accomplish in your life, to have a biblical understanding. But there is a specific cost tailored directly to you in your own life. Do you fear God or not? 